Good morning. Oh, you guys are that sleepy already, huh? I'll come back. I'll try again. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. That was a little bit better. We'll start there. Hey, uh, this morning we have a fun little thing we get to do. This is Q and A. Uh, you've already asked the Q. It's my turn to give you the A. Um, and so I've got a little pile of questions here. Took a look at these uh, last night a little bit, and and you know perused over them, dug deep into scripture to answer some of these. For example, like, what's your favorite color? Um, red. The best color ever. No props for red? A few of you. All right, all right, that's fair. What's your favorite country? Um, The good old U.S. of A., but outside of that, uh, outside of that, probably Costa Rica. Um, What are your thoughts on pickled eggs? No, thank you. Uh, What's your favorite Green Day song? Uh, Boulevard of Broken Dreams. How was your day? Fine, thank you. How was yours? Uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? <sighs> okay, now we got to get into some deep theology on this one. All right, so I don't know what you think, but I know what you're going to think after this. So, is a hot dog a sandwich? Well, here's what we got to do we got to go back to the, the rule of cube. You guys know what this is? The rule of cube says this, is that there's a structural element to, oh, I'm missing one. There's a structural element to all food, right? And the cube is the base prime structure of all things edible. And so if you only have one uh, plane of this cube, you have toast. It, It falls into toast. So pizza is officially toast, okay? If you have two If you have two planes, a top and a bottom, then you have a sandwich, all right? So anything that falls into this category is a sandwich. So like a pie, you know, that has a top to it is a sandwich. Um, (laughs) Hang on with me. Hang on with me. Follow me for a second because this matters, guys. Now, listen. Hold on. You're talking about sweetness that has nothing to do with this. We're talking about the cube shape, okay? Now, if you add a third side to one of these, you now have a taco. taco. Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. Now, a hot dog would fall into this category. So a hot dog is not a sandwich, it's a taco. (laughs) Right? Now, if you add a fourth side, you end up with sushi, okay? Anything wrapped on four sides, but open on both ends. So if you were to, so so in a weird way, there's like, like if you were to take a corn dog and chop it into pieces, the pieces would be sushi. Now, if you have a fifth side, say the back of this cube is filled in and you have five of the cube sides, you now have it's, it's like a, a pita, 
basically. So it falls into that category of like pita bread, like pocket type foods, that's where you're at, okay? Now, if you add the sixth side, you have a calzone, all right? Now, if you haven't chopped up the corn dog, it's technically a calzone. So uh, that'll hopefully give you a framework to understand the answer to the question of why a hot dog is not a sandwich. It's a taco. All right. Now, the reason I took that much time to go into that is because it is important. And it is important for one reason, is because there are opinions out there. She started talking about sweetness, like that has anything to do with how you categorize food. Now, here's what's important. As we get into scripture, we have to have some kind of framework. Because if we just leave it open to your opinion versus my opinion, who are you and who am I, right? What difference does it make what you think or what I think? There has to be some kind of framework or structure by which we answer these questions. And so that's where we're going to kind of start today. So, uh, so the next question is a doozy. Uh, who is God? Oh, that's kind of tricky. Uh, before we can answer that, we have to do some more whiteboarding. So, so <laughs> let me see, where do we even begin with this? So if we're going to answer any of these questions, we have to understand that we have to get them from a trusted source, right? It can't be your opinion, can't be my opinion. We have to have some authority to it. And so all of the things that we're going to talk about come from Scripture. But then the question comes up, goes, what is Scripture? And so that was an argument at one time. And when it comes down to it, the question of authority comes up. It's like, how can you trust you? Some of you right now are sitting here going, I don't know. What does Kip know about hot dogs, right? You're still going like, a hot dog is a sandwich. I don't care what he thinks. Who, what's his authority? Who gives me the right to determine that the cube rule is how we determine whether hot dogs are sandwiches, right? Well, the same thing is what happened with scripture. It's like, who determines what is true and what is not? Because as the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus went out through his disciples and his apostles, and they started to go and preach what Jesus told them to go teach them to obey all I've commanded you. In Matthew, right? He goes, go tell them. Like, I've told you, I'm leaving. It's your job now. And so when he leaves and, and tells them, you go tell them, then it's like, what did they say? I don't know. Were you there? Did you hear what the apostles told the next person and the next person? I didn't, but somebody wrote it down. And so then we have to go back through and trace that authority chain. And so there was something called the canonization. So we take a canon. Now a canon just simply means like a rule of thumb. So in in Greek uh, sculptures, you'd see these huge, massive sculptures. And a question pops up when you see these massive sculptures where the foot is like this big. It's like, how do you make a sculpture? Like, if you've ever started drawing when you first start drawing, right? You're like, I'm going to draw my face. And you start with like your nose. By the time you get done, your ears are like twice the size of your head because you got the scale off at some point right? Well, in Greek, they created a canon, and they're like, okay, a nose is like a standard size, and so a face is like three noses high. You put a nose above, you put a nose below it, and your face shouldn't be any more than three times bigger than your nose. Now, some of you, you've broken those rules, but that's just the way that it is, right? It just, it just is, right? There's proportionality to it, but what the Greek canon was is they used this as a principle to define the, kind of what was the base standard, 
And now there's deviations to that, but the base standard allowed them to do that. So now they've got the size of a head. Then they go, well, if a head's that size, then you know how, how tall is the torso? And it's like, okay, that's three heads tall. So if you get three noses, then you've got a head, you've got three heads, you've got a torso, and then a torso, you should you know, go down like one and a half torsos. And then all of a sudden, everything's proportionally to scale to the very first thing you started with, which is the size of a nose. Now, if you draw according to this, uh, then you get this thing. So the rule of thumb comes like this. You hold your thumb out. You see that when they do that, you use your thumb as a scale when you look at something. So if I want to draw this whole wall, I go, there's one thumb, two thumb, three thumbs, four thumbs. So that's, that wall is four of my thumbs high. So I can then measure it this way as well. And as long as I'm using my thumb, then I have a rule of thumb that I could go by that keeps everything consistent. But my thumb becomes the authority. That's what happened with the Bible. They canonized it. They said, what makes the Bible true? Well, if Jesus said it, it's probably good authority, right? Well, what if the person who heard Jesus said it told us? Well, that's probably pretty good too. Well, what if like someone's uncle's brother's cousin's aunt's friend said they heard someone who told them about somebody who heard from a guy who once knew a guy who might have heard from Jesus something that he said. It's like, eh, maybe not so authoritative, right? So at some point, it's like, but where in that line do you draw the hard line of where do you cut it off? you got to cut it off somewhere, right? And so they did that. The church got together. They said, here's what we have. So when you have your Bible in front of you, it's been canonized. It's gone. You know what? we got to cut it off somewhere. A lot of people wrote a lot of stuff. We can't put it all in the Bible. So let's put the stuff that we can trust the authority of in it. That's the short version of it. There's a lot more into it. But when you ask the question, how do I know all this stuff? It's like, well, somebody smarter than you and smarter than me sat down, a bunch of somebody's actually, and they created a rule that said, well, it has to be this, 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 and this. If you want to know more what the this, this, this is, you have to read it on your own because we only got like 30 minutes. Uh, but they created a canon and said, these are the principles we're going to use to determine what we can trust is the words and teachings of Jesus. What is the truth about God? And then they put that in the Bible. It's the Bible that we have. Now, that's how we use the answer to all these questions. So when you ask, who is God? The answer is, well, we got to go back and look at Scripture. The Scripture that has been author authoritative and canonized to go, this we can at least trust. Now, there may be some other things that we can consider or ponder, but we can't make our life decisions on because we're not really sure if we can trust those writings or those teachings. And so, so we just draw a line. Doesn't mean they're not helpful. Doesn't mean that they're not useful in some way, but it's not something I'm going to determine my eternity on. It's not something I'm going to shape my view of the God that I'm worshiping on. I'm going to keep that a little bit tighter in something that I know I can trust. And so that's where we begin. So then who is God? Well, according to Scripture... God is the creator of everything. Now, this is an interesting question because this is a question I ask everybody I interview to work with me. I go, who is God? And they go, well, God is the, you know, and they rattle off the theological answer. And I go, no, who's God? And then they go, what do you mean? And I go, who's God to you? And then I have an answer for that. And I think all of us should too. But that answer should come from Scripture but is then enlivened by our experience. So to me, when I answer that question, I don't go, well, God is the, and I give you the theological book answer. I go, God is the one who saved me. God is the one who the very purpose for everything I do rests on. Every decision I make, everything that I believe goes back to who he is. And so every decision that I make, every choice in my life goes back to who God is. And that then goes back to scripture. And so it's not just this existential thing of going, well, I think God's in the trees because one day I saw trees and I felt deep, deep love. And it's like, well, what, how do you know that's God? 
Yeah, love, God is love, though. And it's like, eh, that's kind of wonky. Like, you're losing the authority piece there. So when you go back to who is God, we talked about that a little bit last night. It's that, it's that one God, three persons, which is one of the great mysteries in the Bible. Confusing, but yet that's the way the Bible describes him. And so that's what we take at face value. And we just do our best to describe it. And the word that we come up with is Trinity. It's a three-in-one God. Now, that even gets confused, and there's been some heretical. Heretical just means, like, doesn't align with what Scripture says. Um, like, people will say in that, it's like, okay, so last night we talked about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And people go like, yeah, like one-third this, and one-third this, and one-third this. And it's like, well, you can't be third, because then you're saying God's one-third of a God. The Father's one-third. It's like, nah, it doesn't work either. And he's like, no, he's 100%. You know, and then it's like, well, 100%, like all 300, like, so that equals 300%. And it's like, no, the mystery is, is it's 100, 100, 100, and it equals 100%. And you go, that math doesn't add up. You go, it does in the Bible. And that's where faith comes in. You go, I don't fully understand. That's one of the mysteries of the Bible. We have one God, three persons. They're all 100% God. And there's a whole much more you can dig into that. And you could spend probably an entire year or two in Bible college digging into this. But for our purposes, we have one God. And the, and the people of Israel, the Jews, they would, they would recite something called the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy. So when, uh, when you read through your Bible, you've got Genesis, the creation of everything. Exodus, when God's people are freed from Egypt. And then when they're freed, they then go back over the law. They get the Ten Commandments and they get the law. They're in the, the promised land and they go, you know what? We should probably go back over the rules before we start this whole nation of Israel thing. And that's what Deuteronomy is. It's a, a second giving of the law. And when they do that, they have this thing. It's called Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And that Echad means one. It's a oneness of God. It says our God is one. Even though throughout scripture you're going to see Father, you're going to see Son, you're going to see Holy Spirit, but it's God. So you can say that God created the heavens and the earth. You can also say that Jesus of Nazareth created the heavens and the earth. And it kind of in our brain goes, what? That doesn't make sense, but it does. But you have to have faith that this is what the Bible says and that's how it is. And so that's God. I can't spend any more time on that one. So we got to stack here. So we're going to go through these pretty quick. Now I'm building a little bit of a framework on these. So one of these other ones then says, I like listening to other people's testimonies and then comparing them to my own. Can you tell us how you came to Christ? Yes, I can. Um, so when I was eight years old, I lived in Mississippi, a small little church, and I had heard about the Bible. Mom took me to church. My father wasn't a believer. My mom was. Um, and, and my mom took me to church. And hearing the truth of Scripture, there was a guy who came, and we had what was called a revival, where you went to church every day of the week. And that was kind of out of the norm, so it caught my attention. And I remember distinctly this, my Sunday school teacher telling me, it says, if you don't listen in church, you're probably not a believer. Now, what I interpreted that in my like eight-year-old mind was, I better listen in church so that I can be a Christian. That's how we tend to do with scriptures. We go, whoa, there's a rule, let me do the rule. And it's like, that's not really the intention. It's really a test. Um, and so I, it's okay though, because it pushed me towards Jesus. And what I did was I listened. And what I heard was a clear explanation of who God was, who Jesus was, who I was, and that God is the creator of all things. Jesus came to earth, he's God, and he died for me, and that I needed to be forgiven because who was I? I was a sinner in need of a savior. 
And I realized that I believed all of those things, but I had never surrendered my life to Jesus, so I did. I literally, from the back row, I used to sit on the very little, there's a little short pew that they had because the sound booth was next to it, and me and the pastor's son, uh, Greg, would sit on that back pew, and we'd always just make noise and, and be silly. But this day, I listened because if you're going to be a Christian, you have to listen, right? So I listened. This is what I heard. And I was like, I've never done that. I know about Jonah. I know about the ark. I know about Jesus. I know about all these things. I even believe all these things, but I have never told Jesus, I'm sorry for being a sinner and I need you to forgive me. So I stood up where I was. I walked down to the front. I knelt down third pew in. I still remember. I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins because I was a sinner and he was a God and I've offended him because of my sin. And I wanted to have God living inside of me because I knew that if that was happening, that I would have a hope of eternity in heaven. And that was the gospel. I stood up, I walked back, I sat back down in the back. That's how I came to faith. Now, that is a story, and that story is descriptive of how I came to Christ. But it's not prescriptive of how everyone has to come to Christ. So that's a distinction that we need to remember about Scripture, because there are some parts of Scripture that describe what happened, and there are parts of Scripture that prescribe what you should do. And so just like that, you don't have to go to a little church in Mississippi and be eight years old to be a believer. That's what happened to me. But you do have to believe that Jesus is God and that he died for you and that you're a sinner and you need a savior. And so that's prescriptive. But being eight years old and from Mississippi and all that, that's descriptive. And so we have to learn to discern in scripture. What is the Bible telling us we have to do? And what is the Bible describing what has happened? And so as we go through scripture, those two things are very important for us to do. So with that, let's continue. That's some of my testimony. If you want to know more about it, I'll, I'll share the rest of it with you. This one was interesting. If Jesus was without sin, then why did he die for ours? It's a very good question. Often the question comes up, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't he just be like, hey, I'm God. You know what? Let me just cancel that debt you guys all have. I'm God. I can do whatever I want. Hey, right? That's not the kind of God we have. It goes against his nature and his character. Now he loves us. He doesn't want us to die from sin because sin equals death. So what he does instead is because he's also a God of justice. He's not, he doesn't contradict himself. What he says is true. It might look different in different ways, but he doesn't change like shifting shadows, it says in James. It says he's consistent. And so if he's going to be a just God, then he also has to punish sin. And so being a God who loved us, but also hates sin, he had to then offer a sacrifice to pay for that sin. And you can't die for my sin. I can't die for your sin because both of us need somebody to die for us. And if it's not me, it's got to be somebody else. And so Jesus came as a perfect sacrifice. He was without sin. Therefore, when he died, his death didn't pay for his sin. He didn't have any. So his death can then be used to pay your debt because he didn't have a debt of his own. And so that's why Jesus' death, that's why he died even though he was without sin. He had to. He became a substitution for you and me. He stepped in line and basically like if you ever got up there and you're like, oh no, it's $7.48 and I only have five bucks. And then it's like, well, you're short, you're in debt. And then someone steps up and goes, that's okay, I'll pay for it. What do you do? You go, no, 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 no. I want to go in the back and wash dishes until I work off my payment. It's like, no, you go, thank you. That's what you do. You say thank you and you let them pay your debt. That's basically what it means to accept Jesus is he goes, you can't pay your debt. You don't have enough money in your wallet. Let me do it. I died on a cross. My, set, my death can pay for your sins because my death is sufficient. I didn't have any sin. I got all the money in the world, in a sense, to pay for your debt. And so when you say thank you and you receive that gift, 
That's when we become saved because his death takes our place. We no longer have to die for our sin. So that's why Jesus was without sin and then he died for ours. So here's another one. If God has three parts, are they also uh, called as gods? We just kind of talked about that. And also, did God create, or did God or the devil create hell? That's an interesting one. Um, I think there's another one here too. It says, the Bible only says that God created heaven and earth. Who created hell? Um, actually, uh, the Bible talks about God creating hell. Hell is a place that is reserved for Satan and all his minions and for those who uh, refuse to accept the, the, the gift of salvation from Jesus. When we turn our backs to God and we do not receive his forgiveness, then we are separated from him for eternity. But the lake of fire and all of that that it talks about in Revelation was created by God to punish Satan for his rebellion and those angels that followed him and all of his minions. So that gets into another question that was like, what are angels? I think it's in here somewhere. Angels were just created beings that were created by God to serve him. All we know of them is the small little accounts that we see through scripture, a handful of them where we see them doing the will of God uh, on earth. And so we don't know much more about them. There's a lot of stuff that's extra biblical that talks about them. That kind of falls some of it into the realm of like Greek mythology does. It's like, it's a story, but you know, how much of it's true and how much of it's exaggerated. But what we do know is that angels do the will of God and they worship him. And so that's what they were created for, and they do that. And so we see them throughout Scripture doing that. But it's not a major emphasis of the Bible. And so I always caution people to go, when you start wondering about angels and demons, ask yourself, is that really why God uh, gave us this, the Scripture? Did he give us the Scripture so that we would fully understand angels and demons? The answer is no. So don't spend too much time on it. It's really not super, super important. Uh, so don't get caught up on it. They're there. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure it out later in the end. What if I can't hear God? Okay, that's an interesting one. So you say you can't hear God. So I'd answer that a couple ways. Um, if you can't hear him audibly, it's because he doesn't talk audibly necessary to every person. It's not a standard thing that happens. It's like, hey, you receive Christ and now you hear a voice inside your head. It's not really done that way. Now, someone may say they've heard the voice of God. We know throughout scripture there are people who God spoke to and they heard God uh, speak to them. Um, but on a, on a daily basis, it's not like you're going to be like, hey, Jesus, what do I do? And he's like, well, let me tell you what to do. And it doesn't really work that way. God spoke to us through scripture. He preserved the teachings of what it is that we should do, how we should think, who he is through the scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament teaches us about God, about Jesus, everything that we need to know. And that's sufficient for us, for everything that the Christian life needs of how to surrender our life to Christ, how to have your hope and assurance in heaven and how to then live until that day comes. All of that is found in scripture. And that is how God speaks to us. That in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. So this is another one of those mysteries is that when we surrender our life to Christ, the Bible refers to the, the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. It's like a seal that marks us. We have the Spirit in us. And so it's that conscience you have that goes like Romans 7. I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. I know what I don't want to do, but I, but I don't, you know, but I do it anyway. And that guilt that you have in a sense, that conscience that says you know better, that's the Spirit working with the Word and now you have the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and that's really the most important voice of God in your life, is what does His Word say, and how does your Spirit respond to it? And then we're encouraged to then test the Spirit. Anything that we think is from God that maybe is a thought or an idea or something we hear from someone else, we go back to Scripture to go, does that line up? Because if it doesn't, then we can say that is not of God. 
because God wouldn't say this in this area and then go and tell me this, which is different than what I've read in the Bible. So if you ever believe God told you something that you don't find in the Bible or that goes against what's in the Bible, then you go, then that thing I thought was from God isn't from God. So for example, if the Ten Commandments say, don't murder, and then you go, but I think Jesus told me to take that guy out. Then it's like, no, I don't think Jesus said that. Uh, he wouldn't say that because pretty sure right here it says don't murder. Um, so that kind of is exaggerated form of how you would test the spirit of what God says. Okay. Uh, we got to go through a lot of these. Uh, this one's on why do most Christians not obey the Sabbath commandment? What does it look like to obey the Sabbath? <sighs> Tricky. Um, Basically, that one's a weird one because it gets into the, the law of the Old Testament, the law of the New Testament, gets into a series of covenants that we have with God. Uh, basically, we have the Old Testament, and the law was there, and the law is good, uh, but Jesus came to fulfill the law, everything in it and of it. And so while we have these laws in the Old Testament, many of them are good for us. Not all of them are strictly literal. Some of them were completed and no longer necessary. Others of them still help us understand who God is, what he wants from us, how he governed his people, and they give us a peek into the nature and character of God. And so it's all good. And the Sabbath was given to man for rest. It was not given to us because we had to do it because it's a requirement to fulfill God's, you know, holy, you know, mission on earth. It was given to us for our own benefit. It's, it's basically God's blessing to us. Now, when we take it and then turn it into a law and then we go bash someone else over the head with it, then we're taking that law out of context and using it in a way that's not meant to be used. And so while some people don't observe strictly the Sabbath, that the question is, are you finding rest in God? Are you taking a break from your labor, the things that distract you, the things that wear you down, the things that we toil on this earth, as Solomon said, that are meaningless, and then we stop and take a break from that to go, God, thank you for those things. God, thank you. We take a rest. And that Sabbath might look different for different people uh, in our day and age, but there's not a strict adherence to that in Scripture that just goes, well, from sunrise to this to sunrise to that, because in the, in the old law, they took that and they used that as a rule, and then they judged everyone accordingly to it, um, and that really wasn't the intention of it in the beginning. It was meant to for us to give us rest, because Jesus himself did work, according to the Old Testament law, uh, on the Sabbath, but he was doing the work of God. And so it, it, it brings it into question. If you want more about that, look into when Jesus worked on the Sabbath. And if you read about that, there's some great commentaries on it. They'll help you understand it more. Um, let's see. Whew. Uh, we got a lot of these. Uh, why did a lot of these when asked questions like, why did God? Those are tricky because it comes down to the nature of God's will. And so if you ask any question, I'll blanket some of these. If you ask, why did God, you know, X, Y, Z, the answer is, is he's going to do it. Like we talked about according to his very nature and character, and it won't contradict itself. So if you ask the question of why he did it, it's because one, it's in his nature to do it. The other is because it's for his glory, because many of the things God did was to bring him glory. And we, when we understand who God is, accept that because we recognize he's God, I'm not. And anything that he wants to do to bring himself glory is a-okay with me because I'm not God. And so a lot of the things that he does sometimes is simply to bring himself glory. So when God created the heavens and the earth, you know, it's like, why did he do that? And it's like, well, I mean, a lot of reasons probably. One, because he's God, he can. Two, he brings him glory because look how awesome it is. Like he braided 
to the rings of Saturn, you know, and it's like, and he's just like, you know what, I can do it. And I want people to know that I am God. But then the other part is like, I needed to, you know, maybe there's some practical side. It's like, well, I had these people, I didn't know where to put them, you know, and it's like, I got to put them somewhere, you know, it's like, how's this whole thing going to play out if there's not some order or structure to it? And so it it gets a tricky question when you start asking those kind of abstract questions like, why did God, if the Bible doesn't strictly explain the, the intent behind it, then we don't really know. And so I can't, in a way, I think I'd be overstepping my bounds by trying to answer what God was thinking when he did something. So I won't go there. Um, let me see. There's another one here. Uh, this one's tricky too. This one goes back. This is an age old question. And I feel like this one's important. Um, if God can make miracles, why does he let people suffer? Uh, this was a hard one. People, this one again goes back. I wanted to set that framework of the nature and character of God. First of all, God's uh, not there to make people suffer. Suffering exists in the world because God allows it to happen. Um, the other option is really that God just instantly punishes everything, uh, which is not the world I want to live in. I don't know about you, but every, people walking down the road and there's like sin pfft, and everybody falls down. It's like people would just be dropping like flies left and right. So God withholds his wrath, even though he's a God of justice. And so that's why we would go, well, I want God to be just. It's like, really, do you? Uh, how long would you last? It's like, I don't think you'd last very long. So let's just all be okay with the fact that he's holding it back right now. So while there are people who suffer and we go, well, God has all this power. Why does he let that happen? I would say this. One, he's chosen to let it happen, but does it still uh, uh, hurt his heart? Yes. God does not delight in our suffering. God is waiting for the time. And he even talks about how basically the saints and the angels are up there going, okay, God, when are you going to let us loose? Because we've had enough of this. And God's like, I'm even more patient than you guys. God is still waiting even longer than the saints and angels want to, that everyone who's gone before us and all the other angels up there going, God, just, you know, like, let them have it, you know? And God's like, hold on, I have a plan. It's my time. And while this hurts my heart, I have a plan. I want everyone to come to know me. I don't want to just go around being like, smite you, smite you, smite you. That's not the God that he is. And so if you are frustrated by the suffering in the world, you, then you also have to be okay with the fact that God hasn't zapped you yet either um, because he's not that kind of God going around handing out discipline immediately as soon as it's deserved. Um, and we all live in that. It's called grace. And so uh, let's see what else is in here. Uh, some of these are, we don't have that much time. Um, angels, we covered that one. This one was, that one's kind of the sin one we just talked about. Um, this one's interesting. This one, I think, practical. Let me give you this one at least. Uh, this one says, for example, like, how do you be respectful to a teacher that teaches unchristian things? For example, we had to learn about evolution from monkeys, and it was something I don't believe in. Uh, shout out to Valley Brook. Um, they, uh, It says, uh, like, this one is a tricky one, but I think this one comes practical because you're going to be taught a lot of things that you believe or don't believe. And I think too many times, uh, things like this, like evolutionary theory or whatever it is that you're going to learn from the world's views, it's, it's just the best answer the world has. And it's okay to learn it. You don't have to, like, believe it just because you learn it. And so I would say take it from there. There's a lot of things you can learn. And then just like we talked about testing the spirits, it's like you can know everything there is. And there's a lot of stuff to know that completely disagrees with God. But it's okay to know it. It's a matter of whether you accept it and believe it. And that's different. And you don't have to then go around trying to stop everyone else from saying anything that isn't true. It's like you're not God and you're not the justice police. So it's, it's okay chill out, right? Um, it's like, listen to it, understand it, because what it is, 
everything that I've learned and studied and in, in all through science. Science is nothing more than an approach to understand what we see. That's all it is. It's not a religion. It's not a philosophy. It's not a belief. It's, it's just facts, the best we understand them. And it's okay if we don't understand them well. Now, I would look at it as going, that's your best answer. Okay, great. I have another answer. It happens to include the Bible. If you try to take God and the Bible out of your answer, you're going to come up with an answer that sounds kind of wonky because you're not looking at everything. And as a believer, I believe that if God created all of this, that the answer that science could come up with will never be sufficient. And I'm okay with that. And I don't mind learning it. So I don't have to be disrespectful to someone to be like, how dare you say? And it's like, if that's just where they're coming from, it's okay. Our more important thing is not to be like, you're preaching something. It's like, they're not preaching. They're just teaching. They're, they're sharing facts that the best thing that science has come up with, best thing you can do is love them and be an example of who God is so that they look at an alternative version to go, I've never considered that God element to this whole thing. But that person's life makes me want to. I think that's the greater thing that you can do. And so I hope that answers that one. Uh, here's, okay, this one, whoever this one is. How do I forgive someone that I really, really hate? I mean, I want to punch him in the face if I see him. Um, <laughs> so that kind of goes back to the God zapping you thing. Uh, you have to check your heart, number one, because if you think that they deserve to be punched in the face, then you have to ask, so why don't you deserve to be punched in the face? You know, it's like, who are you? Why are you so great that you don't deserve to be punched in the face? If they deserve to be punched in the face, well, maybe you could give them the same forgiveness that you've received from Jesus. And you can be like Jesus by not punching them in the face and actually praying to God to go, God, help me not hate this person. Now, what they did doesn't diminish anything that someone's ever done to you. That's still true. But your response to it doesn't have to be in kind. Your response has to be kind. Um, so that's the way that we reflect Jesus. And so if you're holding hate in your heart to someone because they deserve it, then go, hmm, maybe you deserve something. And, and if you want it just all dished out, I don't think so, because you probably deserve a little bit of punching in the face too. So don't be so quick to judge, all right? Uh, is that a good one? Let's see. Uh, that we kind of covered a little bit. This one, I don't know what that one means exactly, so I'm not sure how to answer that one. Um, this one's tricky. We got, uh, I got, I'm out of time, uh, but I got a couple here that are tricky. Uh, one of these I'll go into. There's one. Uh, did God create all the things? You make sin and evil. Uh, oh, this one was a tricky one. Uh, did God create sin and evil? Uh, God did not create sin and evil, but He allowed it. Uh, here's the here's the kind of the short short version of that. It's like basically God has two choices. He can make you love Him, or He can let you love Him. And if He makes you love Him, is that really love? If I say you have to love me, and then like whatever you give me, is it because you actually love me, or because you're doing what I told you you had to do? It's like, well, true love isn't a command and it can't be forced. So therefore, if I'm a loving God, I have to let you love me. And if I'm letting you love me, then I also have to let you not love me. And so when we don't love God enough to obey him, then there is room for sin. And that's where sin comes from in the world is when we don't choose to do what God has given us the choice to do to be like him. So all the sin we see in the world is just the result of us not doing what God would wish we would do. But he doesn't have the option really in a sense to force us to otherwise what we do really isn't love and God is love and wants love from us and he wants us to love him in return no relationship that requires love as a as an ultimatum is truly a loving relationship it has to be equally reciprocally given and so hopefully that answers that one um 
This is a tricky one. Uh, this one's this one's heavy, and I, I'm going to do this one anyway, even though we're over time. I'm going to take the time on this. Can a true Christian kill themselves? That's rough. But here's what I go. I rewrote the question, and I think this is the question that someone would ask. If someone takes their own life, were they really a Christian? I think that's really what the question is asking, because it comes down to the idea of, um, and this is hard stuff, and the Bible gets into this stuff, guys. It's true. It's real. We talked about, I mean, Solomon's it is like, meaningless, meaningless. It's like, well, what if he just was like, yeah, it is meaningless. Let's be done with this. Um, it comes down to one thing. I would say there's an underlying factor of going, do you really trust God? And so it brings into question, do you trust God? Do you trust God enough to go, I'll live this life no matter what? Because I trust that God has a plan, even though I can't see it. Because in a sense, what you're saying is, I don't want you in control of life and death, which is rightfully yours. I'm going to take control of that, and I'm going to determine life or death, which isn't my place. And so that's kind of at the heart of it. So the question then naturally proceeds to go, well, what if someone kills us? Do they go to heaven? Um, and those questions come in. And the answer is, is no one really knows uh, because we don't know the heart and mind of a person. Um, and the reality is, is that there's people who believe that they're Christians, that God's going to go, I never really knew you. You might have been doing good stuff, but I never really knew you. And I don't know that that's any really different than someone that comes to a, a deep question like this of like, what was their heart? I don't know what their heart was. And I don't know how God's going to do that. I'm not God and I don't want to cast judgment on that. There's a lot more scripture that could talk about it and we could go down some rabbit trails, but there's not a definitive, you know, talk in the Bible where it goes, oh, and by the way, you know, don't kill, don't murder, you know, don't lie. And, you know, here, here's what happens if you do this. It just doesn't cover it that clear and black and white. Um, but I can tell you this, that at, at, from an outside view, we don't know what anyone's going through in their own heart and mind, and we don't know why or whatever's going on. Um, and so we can't cast judgment. And so in the same way, you don't punch your friend in the face that you hate. You also don't cast judgment on where someone's heart or relationship with God is either. Um, but I would say that there is a truth, that there's an underlying truth that we find in Scripture that says if we take that decision into our own hands, it definitely shows a lack of trust in God, but we don't know that if they truly believed in Him. And now different uh, theolo theologies and stuff will say some pretty definitive answers one way or the other, uh, but I won't go there and try to get into all those reasons why. But I would say trust in God. His plan is better, and there's nothing on this earth that we can't overcome through God. And so that's my answer to that one, okay? Um, gosh, uh, we're out of time on the rest of them. I'm already a few minutes over there. Um, but there's a couple more in here I wish we could get into, but I, I think I gave some framework to them. Um, one of them I do want to talk about, I think this will blanket probably a couple in there that maybe touched on this is this idea of just believers, uh, versus non-believers. And so a lot of the questions kind of hinted at this of going, does this rule apply? And it's like, well, it does and it doesn't. Because there is a standard that as we look at scripture and the life of a person, you don't know where anyone's truly saved or not because some people can be pretending it, putting on a front, going through the motions, but in their heart, there's no transformation that leads to salvation. Um, and we don't know that. Only each individual person knows that. But for everyone who is a believer, there's a different set of standards. And so what we as a church, we as believers have to be careful to do is to imposing believers' rules on non-believers. And so there's a couple of questions that kind of came up on that issue of going, well, what about this? And it's like, well, is that person a believer? Because if they're not, they're not being held accountable to all these rules that a believer would be held to. So you can't impose them on them, right? Does that make sense? So uh, what we are to do is to love them. Now, in your life stage, that a lot of times ties into your friends, 
What about my friends who do these things? What about my friend who says this thing? And it's like, well, there is some exhortation in scripture that says, be careful who your friends are. I think we did a sermon on that, a little breakout on that, because it's truly important. Because it says, do not be deceived. You will be corrupted by bad characters, basically. Um, that you're not meant to just go you know, into the depths of sin because you're going to save them. That's not your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is to reflect the truth of Scripture. Your job is to live according to God's Word and let God use you in their life, speaking and acting in a way that they could see an alternative to the way they're living, and then let God work in their life. But it's not your job to save them. Most of the time, you get pulled down rather than them getting pulled up. So be careful. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go the opposite and go, well, are you a believer? No, then get away from me as far as you can. It's like, no, it says to be in the world, but not of the world. So that's a balance we all walk. And so that one takes discernment. And that's where that God's word and spirit comes in. You have to ask yourself that. And if you don't come up with a really good answer, go to someone else who you know has the spirit and understands the word and ask them about those situations. Your counselors, your youth pastors, your parents, someone you would trust in that situation. So hopefully that answers most of those questions. This was fun. Thank you guys for listening. Hope I covered that. And if you guys have specific questions, I love questions. I love answering them. Uh, come see me and I'll dig into them with you. Okay. All right. You guys are dismissed to the thing that's happening next. Cabin time. That's what it is. Go to your cabins. Have a great morning, guys. We'll see you guys later.